Hi there, everybody. Professor Howard back again with another podcast about my favorite system, the endocrine system. And yes, I'm admitting bias. You see, I'm actually a trained behavioral endocrinologist, so the intersection of behavior and hormones uh, really, really excites me um, to the extent that's pretty dorky and nerdy. So I'm actually very thrilled to be making these podcasts for you because I get to talk about one of the things that makes me the most happy. So last time when I was podcasting, I was making noodles. This time I'm not doing anything nearly so interesting. I am saying hi to my bird, hello Stig, and I'm going to go make some tea because it's been a long day of recording and my mouth is tired. So where we left off was discussing how the hypothalamus communicates with the pituitary and discussing the differences between the anterior and posterior pituitary specifically. So I ended by talking about oxytocin release as as an example. So this podcast is going to do a couple things, uh, hopefully. One of them is I hope to describe to you the tropic hormones that come from the anterior pituitary and their effects that they tend to have on their target tissues. And then, What I'd also like to do is give you sort of a general run through of the other hormones produced by other glands and organs in the body that you are responsible for. Um, Of course, we could go into super duper detail about all of these hormones and all of these glands. Uh, Insulin alone is a fascinating topic all by itself, but you know, this is uh, biology 242, not 424 or whatever, um, which means that we we simply haven't the time. That's that's the long and short of it. So, If I'm being intentionally vague or abstruse or general about something, it's probably because there's a lot more detail available, but I can't share it with you because it's beyond the scope of the class. Um, Not to say I might not get to it in other podcasts because it is my podcast after all, but at least for this, not so much. Okay, so let's start by describing tropic hormones. That's T-R-O-P-I-C. Um... So the tropic hormones are the ones that come from the anterior pituitary. They're primarily peptide and uh, peptide hormones and also glycoprotein hormones. And these are, generally speaking, hormones that act on other glands and tissues, sometimes to induce them to produce their own hormones, sometimes not. So let's start with an obvious one, and one that I like to use as an example of negative feedback regulation of the endocrine system in general, and that is thyroid-stimulating hormone. So we would be remiss if we didn't also discuss the hypothalamus in this context, because of course the hypothalamus tells the anterior pituitary what to do. So the hypothalamus is going to release thyrotropin releasing hormone. That travels down the hypophyseal portal veins to the anterior pituitary, and that causes cells in the anterior pituitary to release thyroid stimulating hormone into the blood. Thyroid stimulating hormone travels a short distance down to the thyroid gland and acts on the cells of the thyroid follicles, causing the production of thyroid hormone, T3 and T4. You may remember me talking about it last time uh, because I used thyroid hormone as an example. Triiodo and tetraiodothyronine. um, These are T3 and T4. The numbers correspond to how many iodine atoms they contain. And these are tyrosine derivatives. So it's basically uh, an amino acid chop shop where you take an amino acid or two and chop them up and glue them together and voila, you get a hormone. 
So once the thyroid is stimulated to produce T3 and T4, the thyroid hormones are released on a variety of carrier molecules. So even though uh, tyrosine is relatively soluble, triiodothyronine and tetraiodothyroxine are not. So um, they're not fats, they're just not very soluble, mostly due to the way that they're shaped and the presence of their iodines. So they need to be carried. The other reason that they need to be carried is because, excuse me, I'm just gonna adjust my headphones a little bit. The other reason they need to be carried is because you don't want them to be active right away. So you actually have a couple weeks worth of circulating thyroid hormone at any given time. So if your thyroid were to stop functioning for some reason, knock on wood, hope that never happens, let me give you a good knock. If your thyroid hormone were to stop functioning for some reason, you wouldn't notice for a while because you would be gradually using up your circulating thyroid hormone. So only once that ran out would you start to notice sluggishness and a decrease in metabolism and all the other uh, symptoms of hypothyroidism. So thyroglobulin is one protein that carries thyroid hormone around. Um, albumins, which is just a sort of normal, non-specific plasma protein, also carry thyroid hormone around, as well as a globular protein called transthyretin. Um, so uh, that's an easy one to remember because trans is like transit and thyretin uh, is like thyroid protein related protein or thyroid hormone related protein. So thyr, thyroid in protein. So you can think of all of those proteins as being sort of like a hormone taxi or a Lyft or an Uber. So it, it takes the hormone where it needs to go in the bloodstream. Turns out both the pituitary gland and the hypothalamus express receptors for thyroid hormones. And binding of thyroid hormone to the receptors in the hypothalamus and the pituitary cause the suppression of TRH and TSH release. So that's negative feedback and it helps to keep thyroid hormone levels circulating at a reasonable amount in the blood. Hyperthyroidism, which is a condition, there are different kinds of it. One of the most famous kinds of hyperthyroidism is called Graves disease. Um, pardon me, I had to open my cupboard full of tea here. Um, Graves disease you may or may not know this, but you've probably seen somebody with Graves' disease. Especially if you've ever watched Young Frankenstein or any movie featuring Marty Feldman. So this is becoming an increasingly dated reference, but Young Frankenstein is hilarious and you should for sure see it. Um, and Igor is played by Marty Feldman and Marty Feldman has a condition due to Graves' disease called exophthalmia, where his eyes bug out of his face. Um, no one really knows why uh, hyperthyroidism causes exophthalmia specifically, but it's a very well understood symptom of Graves' disease hyperthyroidism. So go ahead and Google Marty Feldman if you're curious. Not hard to find. So. Obviously, based on that symptom and others, uh, you don't want too much thyroid hormone causing hyperthyroidism. You likewise don't want too little causing hypothyroidism. Again, there are different types of each. So an example of a type of hypothyroidism is Hashimoto's disease. 
Um, some of them, many of them are autoimmune, in which the immune system inappropriately attacks the thyroid hormone uh, and either suppresses or enhances its activity. So if your negative feedback loop is working correctly, uh, you will have a constant steady replacement of lost thyroid hormone, um, not too much, not too little, a Goldilocks amount. So that's an example of a negative feedback loop that includes a tropic hormone, a releasing hormone, and the hormone that they together cause to be released. So that's the thyroid. Let's move on to some other examples. So the next example I would like to address is adrenocorticotropic hormone, abbreviated ACTH. So this uh, has the target tissue in its name. So adreno means adrenal gland. So this hormone acts on the adrenal gland. Cortico means specifically the cortex of the adrenal gland. And tropic hormone means it acts to cause the release of a subsequent hormone. So ACTH is released from the anterior pituitary is caused by corticotropin releasing hormone from the hypothalamus, CRH. And ACTH acts on the cortex of the adrenal gland to cause the production primarily of glucocorticoids, which are derived from cholesterol, like all steroid hormones, and these consist of cortisol and corticosterone. So those two hormones are primarily responsible for changing the way your body uses fuel in response to stress. So release of corticosterone and cortisol are going to encourage increased lipolysis, so use of fat, and increased use of amino acids for fuel, to fuel ATP production, instead of glucose. And that's called a glucose sparing effect. So it's spare the glucose, save it, um, we're going to use other stuff instead. Turns out epinephrine and norepinephrine also have that function. And in fact, epi and norepi are sort of more responsible for the short phase of the alarm response. And cortisol and corticosterone, along with aldosterone and other mineralocorticoids, are responsible for the longer term management of a stressor. So we'll talk about the general adaptation syndrome and the physiological stress response probably not in this podcast, probably in a subsequent one. I don't know. We'll see. So that was ACTH and its axis. Oh, I should explain what I mean by the word axis. So in the endocrine system, an axis is the relationship generally formed by negative feedback between the hypothalamus, the anterior pituitary, and the target organ or tissue it acts on. So the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis is called the HPA axis. The hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis is called the HPG axis. I'm going to mention the HPG axis and explain a little bit about it today during this podcast. However, I'm going to save really detailed discussion of those feedback loops for subsequent podcasts because um, I want to talk about how they manage and regulate things like the onset of puberty and also uh, important reproductive processes like spermatogenesis and oogenesis. Uh, programming note. I know it looks like it's spelled oogenesis. It's OO, so you kind of pronounce the O's in a row instead of saying oo. So let's talk about the HPG axis a little more. 
So hypothalamic pituitary gonadal is the axis that directs the production of sex steroid hormones, so estrogens and androgens, and also directs the development and production of gametes, so sperm and eggs. So I thought I would speak generally about these, and I will. In general, in males, and I'm using males to refer to the gametic and physiologic sex of the individual, um, not their gender or gender identity. And I also want to acknowledge that um, I'm speaking in a relative binary here, not because sex or gender are strictly binaries. They aren't. We have to acknowledge the existence of intersex people, for example, but rather because talking about these things as a binary is a good starting point for learning. It's a good jumping off place for understanding more complex ways of being. So that's my little disclaimer there. Okay, so generally speaking, if you are an XY person and you have testes, here is how FSH and LH are going to work. The hypothalamus is going to release gonadotropin-releasing hormone, which will travel in the hypothalamal hypophyseal portal down to the anterior pituitary. The anterior pituitary, in response to JNRH, will release FSH and LH. Those are follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. Follicle-stimulating hormone is a potent stimulator of cell division, specifically meiotic cell division. So it's going to start the mitosis and meiosis that causes the production of spermatozoa. But it doesn't do that very well by itself. Luteinizing hormone acts on other cells in the testes, so not sperm progenitors, and luteinizing hormone's function is to cause these cells, called cells of Leydig, to produce testosterone. Testosterone supercharges the production of sperm. So this is a relationship between two hormones that we call a synergism, which means that two hormones together produce a larger effect size than either of them individually. And I don't remember the exact figure, so full disclosure, I'm looking it up right now. You can too, but um, hang on just a second. I know the number starts with a three. Okay, so um, follicle stimulating hormone plus the testosterone produced by luteinizing hormone together cause a sperm production rate of about 30 to 60,000 sperm per minute. 30 to 60,000. Independently, they both stimulate sperm production, but nowhere near the number of 30 to 60,000. Um, so that's an impressive number, and it's a really good example of synergy in hormone interactions. So that's the sort of short version of FSH and LH acting on the testes. So it causes stimulation of sperm production and the production of androgens, primarily testosterone. So now let's discuss the same axis, but in people with ovaries. A little more complicated, but again, remember, I'm not going to go over much about the specifics of that feedback loop 
we're kind of going to wait for the reproductive system for that purpose. So again, the process starts with gonadotropin releasing hormone. That is important. And again, the anterior pituitary is going to release follicle stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. So follicle stimulating hormone acts on the ovaries to encourage the development of what's called a follicle. A follicle is a group of cells in the ovary, including an oocyte, but also including some other uh, estrogen creating cells. And basically a couple of these start developing per ovarian cycle and typically only one is ovulated. So follicle-stimulating hormone is actually named for this phenomenon. It causes the increase in size and cell number in follicles. Some of the cells of the follicles secrete estrogen. So the bigger the follicle is, the more cells it has. And the more cells it has, the more estradiol it produces. So estradiol feeds back on the pituitary and hypothalamus, and basically it reaches a critical mass at which it suddenly triggers a large and sudden release of luteinizing hormone. This event is called the LH surge. And the LH surge is what causes ovulation. So again, remember I said, the amount of circulating estrogen corresponds to the size and number of developing follicles in the ovaries of a person who has them. And once the follicle is big enough, it releases enough estradiol to cause the LH surge. At that point, ovulation takes place. After that, the scar on the ovary becomes a structure that secretes a bunch of progesterone. And we'll discuss the effects of the subsequent hormones um, on the hypothalamus and pituitary uh, when we get to the ovarian and uterine cycles specifically, because there are, there are many more interlocking feedback loops in that portion of anatomy and physiology than on the XY individual side, and I want to save it for actual repro stuff. Okay, so um, the PowerPoint slide that my students have access to, if you're not one of my students, hello, what are you doing here, but welcome. Um, we kind of hit the key points of the endocrine system and then move on to some specific examples like general adaptation syndrome and others. But I'm going to take some time in here to cover some stuff that you're definitely responsible for reading, but that we don't talk much about um, directly in lecture. So remember, you're supposed to be reading your book. Your book is supposed to be your primary source of information. Um, lecture should be your second pass at information. So. I mentioned glucocorticoids, um, and those actually come from the zona fasciculata of the adrenal glands. So yes, we're circling back to the adrenal cortex. So these are cortisol and corticosterone, as I mentioned, and basically these preferentially cause the release of fat and fatty acids and amino acids instead of gluc glucose. Another phenomenon that has been robustly studied is that glucocorticoids are anti-inflammatory. Um, so you should take this to mean they inhibit the immune system. 
which in some cases is good. So, you know, when you're in pain and you're all puffy and inflamed, you take probably an NSAID, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, like ibuprofen, and that makes your pain go away, and that probably feels good. But inflammation does have a physiological role, and part of that is uh, repairing damage and, and tissue regeneration and also keeping you from getting sick. So what that means is that long-term circulation of glucocorticoids eventually suppresses the immune system in ways that can be dangerous. The zona reticularis is responsible for secreting androgens. So it secretes androgens in response to ACTH as well. Um, and androgens are the sex hormones mostly produced by the testes, but they're also produced a little bit by the adrenal cortex. Because all steroid hormones are derived from uh, cholesterol, and all you need to do to convert one from the other is use enzymes, a lot of these androgens are easily converted into estrogens. So you can have either or both. Interesting side note on the zona reticularis and androgens versus estrogens, there is a condition called congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Hyperplasia, I would like to remind you, means... Uh, an enlargement of an organ due to an increase in cell number rather than an enlargement of an organ due to an increase in cell size. That's hypertrophy. So congenital adrenal hyperplasia is being born with adrenal glands that are too big and have too many cells. What happens is during fetal development, the zona reticularis releases too many androgens and estrogens and ends up influencing the sexual differentiation of the developing fetus. So people with congenital adrenal hyperplasia are often born and are often missexed by their neonatal physicians because they have what is termed ambiguous genitalia. So because the vulva and the penis and scrotum come from homologous structures, um, and they are, you know, small in size at birth due to a lack of sexual maturity, congenital adrenal hyperplasia can change those external structures in a way that, frankly, is confusing to people who have been trained in a classical uh, genitals-based binary. So they'll look at a baby and say, uh, boy, I guess? Um, and, you know, historically that was a problem because it, it missexed and misgendered people who were, you know, socialized in a way that wasn't natural to them. Fortunately, now that condition is very well understood and society is much more accepting of intersex people um, and people who may have been uh, declared one thing but uh, identify as something else once they are mature enough to, you know, understand that. So that's just an example of a, a consequence for the adrenal glands. Additionally, we've got catecholamines. So the adrenal medulla is going to release epinephrine and norepinephrine. And because uh, these epinephrines and norepinephrines are released by anexonic neurons into the blood rather than synapsed onto another neuron, they're considered to be hormones. So these, of course, are going to have roles in regulating the autonomic nervous system, and we've gone over that pretty robustly in a previous chapter, so I'm not really going to revisit it now. Another one that I want to address is the pineal gland. So the pineal gland secretes melatonin. Um, I'm saying pineal on purpose. That is because it looks like a pine cone. Does it really? No, but the people who found it initially thought so. So pineal gland it was, not pineal. That is a personal peeve of mine. I don't care how you say it as long as you spell it correctly if you're one of my students, but 
make an effort at least to pronounce it correctly. So the pineal gland is very deep in the brain. Um, it's just above the superior colliculi and it's just below the posterior commissure, if you remember either of those. Hear me subtly giving you hints about brain anatomy to remind you for 241. Yes, I'm very clever. So the pineal gland is responsible for secreting melatonin. Melatonin is secreted in the dark. So during the daytime, pinealocytes secrete serotonin. They're busy making it. During the nighttime, some events get switched on. I won't go into those. Um, I will nerd out on them too hard. This is what my thesis was about, and I have to show some restraint here. So during the nighttime, that serotonin is converted into melatonin, and the melatonin is released. So it's interesting because it corresponds to the time when humans are designed to be sleeping, um, and that helps influence circadian rhythm, so periods of wakefulness versus periods of rest, which is why you can take melatonin as a sleep supplement. But uh, spoiler alert, if you don't take it at the right time, so in the right window before sleep, it won't do anything. So timing is an issue as well. Um, melatonin is important for timing reproductive reproductive functions. So it affects GnRH secretion, for example. Um, here again, I have to show restraint because I, I looked at melatonin receptors in the brains of seasonally breeding organisms for my thesis research. Uh, it turns out melatonin has a big effect on telling animals what time of year they should be having sex because they're not calendar creatures. They can't look at the calendar and say, oh, it's May, I should be having sex. They just know somehow, which is magic. Interestingly, in humans, melatonin can influence the onset of puberty, and it also seems to have a role in seasonal affective disorder. So, I could go on and on about melatonin, but I won't. Final thought on melatonin and the pineal gland, because it's interesting and because medical history is interesting, is as follows. Rene Descartes, famous for Cartesian coordinates, and also something that he thought to be a proof of existence of the divine. I invite you to read that. It's quite a lark. Um, very, very smart man. He thought that the pineal gland was where the human soul resided. Here's why. It's very deep in the brain. It's in the center-ish. It's tiny. And it's the only structure that he observed not to be bilateral. So there's not one on each side. There's just one. So he imagined a little homunculus curled up inside of there that represents each individual's soul. And this was a time when, you know, finding the anatomical location of the soul and, and things like weighing the soul as it left the body were very popular fields of study. So he joined in and he decided that the pineal gland was where the soul lives. Um, since the existence of a soul cannot be proven or disproven, he could be correct. I personally don't think he is, but I have no way to falsify that. So... I also want to acknowledge that there's limitations to science um, as far as what we can understand about the natural world, and those are often limited to our ability to observe and confirm or deny the existence of something. The soul is not something that you can really do that with. So, who knows? Maybe Descartes was right. All right, let's move on to the pancreas. So we're going to move from lofty discussions about whether or not there's a soul to talking about a little organ that sits in your midsection that secretes digestive juice and insulin. And also glucagon. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that. So the pancreas is special because it is what is called a heterocrine gland. 
Heterocrine means it has exocrine portions and endocrine portions. The exocrine portions are very important. They allow you to do things like digest proteins and fats. You very much need them. Studded throughout the endocrine or the exocrine tissue are little islets called islets of Langerhans or pancreatic islets. So these are little balls of endocrine tissue situated in exocrine tissue. And these secrete a bunch of stuff. So alpha cells inside of these islets, which I've asked you to observe in the lab, um, produce glucagon. So an easy way to remember the function of glucagon is glucagon is secreted when glucose is gone. So if you are low on blood sugar because you're in a fasted state, you're probably secreting more glucagon than you would otherwise be. And glucagon is responsible for putting glucose into the blood, so elevating blood glucose um, in response to a drop. And it does this by increasing the rates of glycogenolysis, which is the breakdown of glycogen. This specifically comes from the liver. Beta cells produce insulin, which you guys probably know about from diabetes. Insulin is released in response to high blood sugar. So insulin uh, stimulates the uptake of glucose from the blood into the tissues that need it. Delta cells produce a peptide hormone that is really, really similar. In fact, it's identical to growth hormone inhibiting hormone. So this actually acts too locally. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. I would have paused for that cough, but I can't using the apparatus that I possess. Um, basically, it suppresses the release of the other two hormones, alpha, alpha and beta cell secretions, glucagon and insulin, respectively. Um, and it also acts on the rates of uh, gut motility and digestive tract secretion. Okay, so there's an entire section in your book, um, figure 18.7, if you have the most recent edition, that really nicely summarizes the effects of glucagon and insulin and also describes what they're released in response to. So I would encourage you to get familiar with that figure. So interestingly, most of the, the you know, stuff we've talked about, the gonads, the thyroid, the parathyroid, um, oh, parathyroid hormone is what the parathyroid releases. We talked about that in the skeletal system. So revisit that and its role in calcium homeostasis, please. But I'm not going to discuss it here because we already have. So even organs that don't have a primary endocrine role also release hormones. This is why the endocrine system is, in my opinion, highly underrated and underappreciated because even hormones or even organs like your kidneys and your stomach and your fat cells produce endocrine secretions that are very important and they have an important regulatory function that keeps you homeostatically normal. So the kidneys, for example release a hormone called calcitriol, which is the most active form in vitamin D. And that's, of course, going to prevent you from losing calcium in your urine and increase the rate at which you absorb calcium in your intestine. The kidneys also secrete erythropoietin, which acts on the bones to cause the production of red blood cells. More on that later. Renin is not really a hormone, it's a enzyme, and specifically, renin converts angiotensinogen, 
this is a precursor produced by the liver, to angiotensin 1, and that happens in the blood. Then in the lungs, angiotensin converting enzyme converts angiotensin 1 into angiotensin 2. Angiotensin 2 causes the secretion of aldosterone by the zona glomerulosa of the adrenal cortex and antidiuretic hormone by the posterior pituitary. So both of these are going to prevent water loss by restricting water loss from the kidneys in two different ways. We'll talk about those different ways more when we get to the urinary system. And the goal of this is to bring blood volume and blood pressure back up to normal. But you don't want to just add water to your blood. You also want to add cells. That's where erythropoietin comes in. The heart, which, you know, that's that pump thing that moves your blood around. Pretty important. If it stops, you die. The heart also has endocrine function. So the heart releases a set of peptides called atrial natriuretic peptides. So let's break down that word. Atrial means coming from the atria of the heart, the top two chambers. Natriuresis is the loss of sodium in the urine. So uresis is the loss of something in the urine, and the abbreviation for sodium is NA, hence natriuresis. <clears throat> and then peptides, of course, peptide hormones. So they are short chains of amino acids. So these are antagonists of aldosterone and ADH. These cause loss of water and suppression of thirst rather than the converse. So you would expect atrial natriuretic peptide to be released when blood pressure and volume is high. The thymus is located in the mediastinum. If you're forgetting what that is, picture the thorax. Thorax contains heart and lungs, right? As well as esophagus and some other stuff. <clears throat> Sitting on top of the heart in front, is the thymus. So it's in this vase-shaped space around the heart, just deep to the sternum. So interesting thing about the thymus is that the thymus is responsible for coordinating and directing the early development of the immune system. So it's very large in infants and children, and as you get older and older, it undergoes a process called involution, meaning it gets replaced with non-endocrine tissue, primarily collagen. Excuse me. That is because the thymus is kind of like the training ground for your immune cells. It's where they learn how to distinguish between your own cells and foreign cells and then what to do about that. So it's kind of like a police academy, but a really, really brutal one. So any cell in the thymus that fails to be able to distinguish between self cells and non self cells is executed. They're all killed. Any cell that shows that it can do that is permitted to leave. So between the killing of incapable cells and the graduating of capable cells, as you age, your thymus gets smaller and smaller. So this brings me to the final detail that I'll discuss today in the podcast, because I'm trying to keep them short-ish. Um, and that detail is the following. So I'm going to tell you a story, and this is a story that's a bit of medical history. And first, I'm going to take a sip of my tea so I can stop coughing. It turns out that talking for four or five hours straight really takes a toll on your larynx. So let's get back to the thymus. Humans have been dissecting other humans for many millennia. 
So the earliest uh, writings of that predate the ancient Romans and the ancient Greeks. As long as you have a sharp implement, you can cut open a dead person and look around in there. People have been doing it for a long time. With the advent of written language, people began to write down what they saw. And this was the earliest form of medicine, just establishing what is there and then trying to understand why it works the way it does. So, because we are all socialized, pretty much, and I think this crosses cultures mostly, um, humans are socialized to love and care for children. And that makes a lot of sense. Children are our future. We make them both because we like them and because in some senses we have to. Um, children are important in many societies and for a good reason. So imagine that you are a very, very poor European um, in around, you know, Victorian and Edwardian times, even a little bit before that. People tended to have a lot of children because of lack of access to birth control. And if they happened to be unlucky and be destitute, which many people were, most in fact, they often had more kids than they could feed. Also, infant mortality was really, really high in those times because medical care was relatively undeveloped and not available. So here's what happens with that. Most people would not consent to having their child autopsied under those circumstances. You're grieving. You're sad that your child died. The last thing you want is some uppity young doctor saying, would you mind if I cut Richard open to look at his insides? You're probably going to say no, right? And for an understandable reason. However, if you are a person in such a position, the odds are you have other children who are still alive and could use a quality of life increase. So what started to happen was that recruiters from medical colleges primarily would solicit the bringing of corpses to them so that they could resell them to medical universities. So if you were a very, very poor parent who had just suffered the incredibly horrible loss of a child, but you had remaining children and you needed to feed them and keep them alive, this is something you might consider doing. And many people did. So they would bring their child to the uh, cadaver purveyor, basically, receive a payment, and then the child would be transported to a medical college and an autopsy would be performed in pursuit of knowledge. So up until that became common practice, most of the people who were being dissected medically were uh, adults who had either been donated or were the result of grave robbing. But regardless, adults have tiny thymuses because we don't use ours anymore. We're pretty much done doing our immune learning. So the early doctors looked at these child thymuses and said, oh my god, these are huge compared with adult thymuses. Proportionally, they're much larger. They take up more of the thorax, they're gigantic, and they look more glandular than uh, these weird little shreddy adult thymuses. So they drew a conclusion based on that. It was the wrong one, but it made sense given, you know, the state of science at the time. And that was that premature and unexplained deaths of children, including things like sudden infant death syndrome or crib death, were somehow caused by an enlarged thymus. In reality, the thymus is just regularly large in children and small in adults. But you can see, based on what I described, how 
you might draw the incorrect conclusion based on what you learned if you were a scientist back then and didn't know any better. So this is an example of medical history where there's this strange intersection between class, socioeconomic status, uh, ability to gain resources, and the practices and rituals and taboos surrounding decedents, specifically deceased children. Okie dokie. So the podcast is now 39 minutes long, almost 40. Uh, I haven't talked about adipose tissue yet, so real quick I will. Um, Leptin is a hormone that is released by adipose tissue that causes long-term appetite suppression. So um, it's released by adipocytes, cells that store triglycerides, and it basically provides the hypothalamus with information about how much reserve fuel is currently in the body. The more fat cells you have, the more leptin produced. So leptin was first discovered um, in a strain of mice that had genetically developed a defective leptin gene, um, and these mice became obese because there was no signal from their hypothalamus to inhibit feeding. So that is what leptin is all about. Uh, interestingly, leptin is required in certain levels for the production of gonadotropin-releasing hormone, probably because steroid hormones, especially sex ones, are uh, derived from fats. So if you don't have enough fat on deck, you can't create those either. So this relationship between leptin and gonadotropin-releasing hormone is why uh, very, very thin children specifically ones with ovaries, but not always, typically experience puberty later in life, and why an increase in body fat can improve fertility if someone is trying to conceive. Okie dokie, so I hope you found that little discussion of hormones and a little bits and bobs of medical history interesting. Uh, I'm going to sign off for now and go work on some video stuff. I'll get the podcast posted, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Physiology Corner with Professor Howard. I will see you in the next one where we will discuss the HPG axis in more detail and all of the nitty-gritty details of how to make a brand new and unique human. Bye!